Let's take a look today at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. It's just one verse. We're going through a series on, by faith, you know, fill in the blank, different people that we can look at who have lived lives of faith, given us a picture of what it means to walk with God. And this is just one verse. So put your finger there, and then we're also going to read the backstory in Genesis chapter 4, just the first 10 verses, because this does have something that's gone before that sets the context for it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. There's a black Bible in front of you if you want to grab that. Didn't check the page number. It was like 1190-something from last week. What is it? 1191, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, or follow along in your own Bible. And then flipping back to Genesis 4 will be pretty easy. It's toward the very, very front of your Bible when you find that. So here's what the Hebrews 11.4 says. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. And then Genesis chapter 4, if you want to flip back there, this is the first 10 verses. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've begotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord favored or had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no favor or less regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it you must master it Cain spoke to Abel his brother and when they were in the field Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him and the Lord said to Cain where is your brother Abel he said I do not know am I my brother's keeper and the Lord said what have you done the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground this is the word of God well 28 years ago Almost exactly to the day, a young 28-year-old captain hopped on board a C-5 cargo plane headed to the Gulf War. Uh, he never made it. His plane crashed, and he had a horrific death lingering for a few days in the, in the aftermath of that as well. He never saw 29 years old. But there's a story behind his sacrifice. When he was going, he wasn't just serving his country. He was more interested in serving his king. He was a follower of Christ. And his mission as he went, as he brought a stack of Bibles with him, was to share God's love with as many people as he possibly could. You probably, most of you probably haven't heard of Captain Brad Schultz, But you've been affected by him in some way. He was my mentor, and he discipled me. And when I was just a 16, 17-year-old kid uh, following Christ for the first time, Brad was somebody who said, I'm going to invest in your life. He pulled me aside. He said, Mark, do you want to get together uh, somewhat regularly, and I'll just share my life with you. And I said, 
That sounds great. Most of us want that. I know not all of us, but for me, I was very, uh, I felt honored to have somebody who would take me aside and say, let me just share my life with you. Now, I was headed off to college when I heard that that C5 went down. I saw it on a news story. I didn't know Brad was on there. This was before cell phones. Uh, so I found out a couple weeks after he had died that that was the case and showed up on the college campus um, just having found out, and it was, a, it was a tough time. But I was affected greatly by Brad's legacy, uh, the legacy of faith. And I was thinking about him in this verse, too. By faith, he still speaks even though he's dead. You know, Brad had invested in me, and he said, I'm not perfect by any means, but I have a life that I'm going to offer as a sacrifice to God. I don't know what that looks like. For him, a little bit of it was serving as a captain in the Air Force, but he was going to get out of the military and go be a youth leader because he discovered that he really loves sharing Jesus with other people. And he never got to do that. And I like to think in part, what some of the ministry God's given me is the legacy of faith I've received from him. I get to talk about Jesus to people. And he's invested in me just a little bit. And I think of how profoundly I've been influenced by that. Brad had already been divorced as a 28-year-old man, and we never delved too much into that. He wasn't perfect. He struggled. But he wanted to share his life with me, and he had this approach to God that just said, okay, I'm yours, whatever you want. And that's why when he got on that plane, he was thinking about sharing his faith with others. And I think it's mysterious sometimes. Last week when we looked at Hebrews chapter 11, we said, what is faith? And it gives us some answers there. But our big conclusion that behind that is this from last week. Faith is the belief that God's plans are bigger, better, and more beautiful than ours. I mean, think about that. God's plans are bigger than ours. And that's absolutely what Hebrews 11 is about. Because he says, not everything was revealed and that these people had promises they were looking forward to that never came about because God had something better planned later. And because of that, it's more beautiful. It's, it's fuller. It's also at the same time a little mysterious, isn't it? I mean, don't you think God's plans are just a tad mysterious if you're walking along with him? And that's because, of course, we like to think that we've got better plans than God does, and it should all line up according to our plan. And God destroys that so much in our lives. He says, I've got something more beautiful. But here's the thing. You might not see it even in your lifetime. You might not. All these people show that. They were waiting for something that never happened. And they still lived by faith. And that's what we said last week. So this week we have Abel who shows up. And it says by faith Abel did something as well. And I want to suggest that the basic premise here that the author of Hebrews is getting to is another picture of faith. Faith is what? It's clinging to the reality that Christ is our sufficient sacrifice. And because of that, we can offer our lives responsively in humble service to him. Comes across a little strange in the PowerPoint there, but I see that. So you, that's, that's, that's the basic idea. That Christ is our sufficient sacrifice. Offering then our motives. We said we surrender everything. Our desires, our whole beings to him. And realizing that we can always grow in this. 
We can always grow in, in trust, and we said that last week, faith has a growth curve. The basis, however, for our right standing is never what we have done, but in trusting what Jesus has done for us. He's the only perfect sacrifice. You can offer everything you want, but there's only one who is the perfect sacrifice. That's the basis for us offering our lives to God. And there's three statements here that this author says, by faith. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. Here's a big brother and a little brother, the very first family, and already some sibling rivalry going on. And this gets pretty intense. I mean, you think you've got siblings, maybe brothers, who wrestle and fight and quibble with each other, and maybe there's some even physical injury. This is a murder. The very, very first family. You know, if you have problems in your family, you're not alone, right? I mean, this is right after Genesis chapter 3, the very first family, and we have this happening. In due time, they bring a sacrifice of their laborers to God. Cain was a farmer. Abel was a shepherd. Cain brings the fruit of the ground we see in Genesis 4, 2, as we read. And Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And God favors Abel's offering as better than Cain's. And it begs the question, what was better about Abel's sacrifice? Don't you wonder about that when you're reading about this? How are we to understand this? Some argue that because Abel's was a blood sacrifice, it was more acceptable. However, you can look at like Leviticus 2. There's lots of grain offerings that are offered as well that say they please the Lord and they favor God. So I would suggest that's not so much in view here. The main issue, it seems, appears to be the entire point of the passage, which is that Abel's was done by faith. And Cain's wasn't, wasn't in the same sense. So it seems to me, I would argue, that the attitude and the motive behind the sacrifice are what's in view here. It seems more likely since the entire focus is on faith. By faith, Abel. And the contrast is Cain. Cain's was not offered with, apparently, the same quality of faith. Here's the thing about biblical faith. It goes beyond mere conformity to a set of behavioral expectations. They both offer a sacrifice on the outside. What's different? It seems to be something about the motive behind it, the heart that is driving the sacrifice itself, not the thing, but the thing behind it as well. Faith isn't just external, it's internal. You know, remember from the first three verses of Hebrews 11 last week, Faith is being certain of something you cannot see. There is a cannot see element to faith. You can't measure faith. It's not like you just kind of put it there and you can see it. And I can see, oh, Jay has that much faith today. Last week he had this much. But you can measure sacrifices, right? You can bring a sacrifice. You can actually, I know you do it. Those of you who file your taxes, you're measuring your giving to the church or to whatever it is. This is how much I gave. That's measurable. What about the heart behind it? God says he loves a cheerful giver. He's interested in the heart. What's driving the sacrifice itself? Faith is internal. That's where it starts. We cannot measure the heart behind it. We don't know a person's attitude or motive. I mean, just imagine if you could, if you knew what somebody's attitude or motive was. Thank goodness we can't. 
Because you know how many times I'm operating out of false motives that you think I'm a great guy doing the right thing and I'm just don't really want to, but I have to, and my attitude stinks. And there is some to it. There's some just doing it. But ultimately speaking, if I've surrendered everything to God, then my heart is completely focused on pouring out my life for others. I don't care anything about me. I only care about you because that's what Jesus did. I got issues. And so do you. My faith needs to grow, and I suspect so does yours. This is an internal issue, and God's driving to the heart. We can't measure motives. You can suspect them, and we do that all the time. And sometimes you're wrong, by the way. I, I, think, I think texting and email are some of the worst things that have ever happened to us when it comes to communication. Because we're constantly reading motives behind something. Somebody writes a really brief text, and you think, oh, they're whatever. They're mad at me. Or, or they're, you know, they're being snooty. You know, they were just, you know, sneaking in a text at a red light. <laughs> who, who knows what's going on there? I mean, you don't know the motive behind. But face to face, looking at you, God comes to Cain and says, why is your face so downcast? He can see. We show some of these things. So that's a little sidebar about just motives and reading motives in. And by the way, one of the things you don't want to do, if you're uncertain, go to a person and ask. I don't understand. What's the motive behind this? Clarif clarifies a lot of things in life. So make sure you do that. Here's the thing, though. We don't know somebody's motive, but God does. Earlier in Hebrews, we read this. The Word of God judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. God's Word, as you read it, will serve as a judge on the thoughts and the attitudes of your heart, the things that nobody else can quite get to. Nothing in all creation is hidden before the eyes of him to whom we must all give account. Faith involves some things you simply can't measure, but God is going to measure them. Abel's sacrifice involved faith in a way that Cain's did not, in a way that God can measure but we cannot. And I think that's what's hard about this text is we want to know everything. And the text is sort of silent, except for the fact that he did it by faith. This shouldn't surprise us. We see this in other places. You know, when uh, this book of Samuel and David and Saul and who's going to be king. And here's what we read. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That can be a source of great encouragement. And also it can be really scary at the same time. Faith starts with a heart that is right with God and then it works from the inside out. That's just how faith seems to operate. And so we shouldn't be surprised that as a result of that heart that seemed to be right with God for Abel, the second statement is made. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. Living by faith starts with the heart but it does not stop there. It affects what we do. It shapes our ethics. Our sense of what is right and what is wrong changes how we behave. In the Old Testament, the term for righteous, this word here, he was commended as righteous. Looking back in the Old Testament, that word's a very important word. And it has a lot to do with what you do, how you live your life. A righteous person, in this sense, lives life well on all levels. And they will labor toward doing the right things. Why? Because he or she cares about the right things 
And the right things are the things that God cares about. You, you, you'll be interested in the things that reflect God's heart. Not just in some sort of ethereal, out there, kind of kumbaya sort of way, but in the real physical world where you actually get up, drink your coffee, go to work, invest in your kids, go home, spend money, and talk to people. God's concerned about that stuff. I mean, this, this whole faith journey is not just something out there. It's here. You live in a certain place at a certain time and you have certain people in, around you that you live by faith in front of. And you interact with them, the way you speak, the way you spend, the way you do all that kind of stuff. You ought to care about and say, say, okay, God, what do I do? How do I interact with this? How do I do the right things? What are the things you care about? And the summation of that vision of righteousness in the Old Testament is in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And some of you know this, where he says, what does God require of you? What is it that God requires of you? To live a life as a person who wants to do the right things. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. To act justly. This isn't just to speak about justice. Most of the people, especially in the American Protestant world, like to talk about these things. Doing them is very, very different. And it's, it's hard, but this is what God, you want to do what God requires of you? Do justice. The things that are wrong act as agents of making them right. That's what you're supposed to do. You want to be a righteous person? You love mercy. The people who are wrong, wrongly towards you, your posture toward them is one of kindness and goodness. Wow! This is what God requires. Mercy. People who deserve something, you don't give it to them. It's very closely related to grace and some would suggest as well that you're, you're giving things people don't deserve or you're showing mercy to them. And then to walk humbly with God, put aside your pride, realize you're not God, and then he's got a bigger, better, more mysterious plan than you do. And you walk humbly, open-handed before God. That's what God requires. Abel was a righteous man of, seemed to be walking in this way. We don't know everything about him, but we do know that God speaks well of the offerings that Abel gave inasmuch as they were a demonstration of the righteousness he possessed by faith. A righteousness that spilled over into his life's actions. He was serious about walking with God and obeying him. And his offerings showed it. Caring about and doing the right things matters in the Bible. You cannot have a robust biblical faith that fully reflects the heart of God without caring about the things that God cares about. You just can't do it. And that's the purpose of the law. You know, if you're familiar with, with the, the Bible, you know there's a lot of rules. There's a lot of laws set down. God gave laws to his people. And he didn't just do that just because. He did it because he said this is a good way to live. This is what it looks like to walk before me. And that's the law. It shows us how to live well. At the same time, we know very clearly the law cannot save us. Just obeying all the laws doesn't mean that you're going to be okay with God because we're told if you stumble at one point by James, you're guilty of breaking all of it. And if you're perceptive enough, you know you've broken several laws already this morning. Probably. That's why Jesus comes and says, you think this? It's about adultery. It's about the lust in your heart. You've broken a law. One thought like that. So we're all guilty. 
And, and we've all stumbled from the law, but what's the role of the law then? Why does it even exist? And I, not as a savior. The law is not going to save you. And so to that extent, I would say that the law serves faith, not the other way around. What I mean is, if you're a person of faith like this, and you're feeling like, I want my heart to belong to God, then the law is serving you. It's giving you a, a way to move forward. But you're not mastered by the law. I mean, Jesus came to set you free from that so that you could go back and willingly obey it. That seems to be the relationship here. If you want to be a righteous person, you say, I want to live this kind of faith. I don't know how many of you have seen Les Mis, uh, kind of a classic illustration, but I just watched it again with my daughter. She went off to college, and we'd seen a musical together, and there's this 19, I think 84 version. I, I don't know. That may be the wrong. It might be 90s with Liam Neeson and Uma Thurman. There's no singing in it. Um, and it's just a great picture if you know the story of Jean Valjean who steals a loaf of bread and he gets seven years, I think, of hard labor and it gets extended because he tries to escape and he's this hardened criminal by the time he leaves the prison camps in France and he steals from a bishop and that bishop shows him grace because they caught him as he was running away with the silver. Uh, he has no hope, he can't, he can't work, he can't earn a living. And the bishop, as they drag him back, says, why didn't you take more than this, Jean Valjean? And as Jean Valjean doesn't know what to do with that, it's a new category. He's been shown grace and mercy. This guy could have done justice in that sense, but he shows mercy. He says, I bought your soul with God. And if you know the story, Jean Valjean goes on, becomes the mayor of a city, and he's a, he's a good, kind mayor and a quiet man. And Javert, the man who was in charge of him at the, at the camp and who would beat him and whip him, make sure that he was submissive, ends up being the policeman who's in that same village where he's the mayor, but suspects maybe he's Jean Valjean, but he's changed enough, he doesn't know, and eventually he discovers he truly is. And those two pictures then of Javert, who believes he's doing God's will and persecuting wrong. And Jean Valjean, who's tasted grace and mercy, and because of that, does what's right by others. The whole story is Javert chasing Jean Valjean. And at the very end of it, if you know, he spent his whole life chasing, Javert finally comes to the point, and he's really a picture of the law. He's a picture of you've got to do the right thing, and you did what's wrong, and you will suffer. And Jean Valjean, Jean Valjean forever shows him mercy, even has a chance to kill him and lets him go. And if you know the story at the very end, Javert is so overcome because he doesn't know how to deal with grace and mercy. He's only the law that he ends up committing suicide. It's finally killed him. And Jean Valjean goes, goes free. I've always thought, and perhaps you have as well, isn't that an amazing picture of the law? Javert is the law personified. Always doing, cannot bend, cannot understand the purpose of the law. Because it's not serving its purpose anymore in what he's doing. We do the same thing. And here's, here's what happens. Here's how this works out. If you believe, for example, in your head, in order for me to be right with God, I must obey his commands. And you're thinking like a legalist. You're thinking like somebody who's driven only by the law. Like Javert. If you think, think about this. This is very, if this is true, and it's subtle because you may not realize you do it, 
In order for me to be right with God, I must obey his commands. You're going to tend, tend toward legalism because now you can measure everybody else by how well they obey God's commands. And when they don't quite measure up, hey, you can feel pretty good about yourself, right? And if you don't measure up and somebody else is sitting there judging you, we talk about that all the time, don't judge me, then, you know, you feel like maybe you're not right with God. You're at the top of Diamondback and you think, I haven't had my devotional today. I might die. If I die, I'm going to hell. Really? Because you didn't have your devotions? Usually legalists are very proud and they measure everything. And they're, they're in the Bible quite a bit too, but they can be well-meaning. They can have the right motive. There are people who are legalists who just really are that way because they want to make sure they honor God. They're doing the right thing. Maybe it's gotten off a little bit. And they also might be concerned with people who treat obedience lightly. That happens all the time in the church as well. So if you believe because my obedience is not what makes me right with God, I don't need to be concerned with obeying his commands, well, then you tend towards what's called liber being a libertine. They're both in the Bible. A libertine is like, I'm saved by grace through faith, hallelujah. Let's go get drunk and party. <laughs> you know, because I don't care. Because God's grace is sufficient for me. Amen. Can I get an amen? And they're both wrong. They, they both grieve the heart of God because they've missed the point of faith. They've missed what it's all about. They're both traps. Neither actually honors God. Abel is lifted up as an example of living by faith, the faith that was the motive behind his offering to God. So we can say this, faith leads to action. But the action is never the basis of our right standing with God. That seems to be the message of the Bible as a whole. Faith leads to action, but that's never the basis of our right standing with God. If it were the basis, guess who we wouldn't need? There's a pretty important person in the Bible who came along because we need him. Anybody know who that is? Yeah, Jesus. If we could be saved by, by our works, we wouldn't need Jesus. If faith leads to action and the action is the basis of our righteousness, then we don't need Jesus. You are a functional savior and hallelujah, you can go be crucified for the rest of us. If you'd like to. But we think this way all the time, don't we? But Jesus came to destroy that notion. This is the very nature of the gospel. Listen to this interaction between Jesus and a crowd. This is in John 6, 27 to 29. Jesus says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. In, in the you know, next week we'll see in Hebrews eleven six too. This please, without faith it's impossible to please God. So Jesus comes and he says, you want the seal of approval? What do you do? God says he's placed it on his Son. Well, on him, God the Father has placed the seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? How would you answer that question? What do you do to do the works that God requires? Micah 6, 8? Or something like that? And what does Jesus say? Jesus answered, the work of God, this is what it is, is to believe 
in the one that he has sent. That's the work of God. Believe in the one he has sent. That's where the work of God is all wrapped up in Jesus. He's done it all. Then we know that faith in Christ as the object, as we talked about last week, will certainly move to a life that's, cert- that's honoring him, but it's never the basis. Your work is to believe what Jesus has done. That's the starting point. No wonder where Jesus is called in Hebrews 12, the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who starts it, and he's the one who finishes it. The primary work is to believe and to trust, and that's one of the main components of faith that we see worked out in the Bible, trusting God. Hebrews 11 is written against the backdrop of Hebrews 9 and 10, and if you go back and read those, they argue that there's a better sacrifice that has now been offered by the only one who was completely faithful so that only one person needs to die for the sacrifice of all sins, and that was Christ. That's what Hebrews 9 and 10 says. There's a better sacrifice, Christ. He is the better sacrifice, died once for all. Now, here's what it looks like to live by faith. So this is the story behind our sacrifices. It's the one that Christ himself has offered. That's it. That's the story behind our sacrifice. And just like in this passage that we read in Genesis 4, There was blood spilled, right? Cain murdered Abel. And what does God say? That blood is crying out in condemnation against you. Here we have, in the New Testament, Jesus show up. His blood is spilled as well. And for those who believe by him in faith, what's that blood crying out right now? Is it crying out condemnation? It's crying out forgiveness. He was innocently slain by you and by me in our sins. And that blood now cries out, I forgive you. See how he's the better Abel? Even so, Abel's blood crying out in condemnation against Cain the taker. Christ's blood crying out in forgiveness for us who have taken his life. See, that's why Christians like Jesus so much. Because he's, he's just like that. And that's unbelievable stuff. The one that you have innocently slain now says, I forgive you. And my blood seals that forgiveness. That's the gospel. And that's why we said faith here is clinging to the reality that Christ is our sufficient sacrifice. You see why I said that at the beginning? Christ is sufficient. Now because he's sufficient... Because of that, on that basis, I'm going to offer my life responsibly to him, utterly and completely and wholly. How can I do elsewise? Thank goodness he's patient with us as we get there and work that out. But that's the gospel. There's a third statement here. By faith, Abel still speaks even though he's dead. Well, he's doing that now as we discuss him today, right? But so is everyone else in this passage in Hebrews 11. They're still speaking. And guess what? So will you. Your life will speak to others. This is very much about a legacy that you're leaving. Hebrews 12 speaks about a great cloud of witnesses, those who've gone before, those who stand as examples of living by faith. That's the opportunity you have. What is is it going to look like for you to live by faith? You're leaving a legacy. 
like a, like a living letter, it says elsewhere as well. That's many ways why I started with Brad. You know, I mean, he, he left the legacy. He died at 28 years old. And I'm guessing there are probably a handful of others affected by him who are continuing to walk with the Lord. I don't know, but I am. He left a legacy of faith, one, one that I get to try to pass on as best as I can. I want to live by faith like that. By faith, he still speaks even though he's dead. It's the opportunity before us. How are our lives speaking about what it means to live by faith? I mean, it's, it's at least worth asking, isn't it? Um, what legacy are we passing on? You know, if you take a look at your life and you say, what are people going to look at and say, man, that person lived by faith because fill in the blank. Remember, this is a growth curve, but this is part of why we gather in community. And I look at you and I see your faith is uniquely different than mine. Same object of faith, but it works out in different ways. I need you and you need me. Just the way God has gifted us and experiences in life, I mean, we benefit from one another in community. That's why this is a great cloud of witnesses. This isn't just a solo journey. Look back and see everything that God has done. Let's learn from each other. Let's move forward. It's a question worth asking. And, and this is just a repackaging of the main point, but in what ways are you demonstrating the belief that God's plans are bigger, better, and more beautiful? Even if they appear mysterious. That was from last week. Now think about that. I mean, think about this, this week when all, things don't go according to your plan. Living by faith might mean to say, okay, I'm not going to respond the way I typically do in this scenario, which could be fight or flight. I don't know what it is for you in some way. I'm going to believe in faith that God's got something bigger planned here. Let's take a deep breath. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me. And wait and see what God does. In what ways are we clinging to the reality that Christ is our sufficient sacrifice, offering our lives in humble reliance and submission to him? Those may be, seem a little vague, I understand. But think for a moment, you know, about kids. I know not everybody has children here. Um, but just to bring it down to a practical level of sorts. Have any of you had experience um, that you can make your kids love God? Has anyone here figured out how to do that? Give it a couple seconds here. <laughs> Can't make your kids love God? Hmm. Cain and Abel had the same parents, didn't they? Yeah, Adam and Eve. You think they had the same education? Probably. Do you think they had the same, uh, same discipline they received from their parents? Uh, I'm guessing it was similar. Same influences in their lives, you know, same environment. Same results? Two very different things, right? You may have a measure of control over your children's behavior, especially when they're toddlers. And you can physically relocate them to wherever you want them to be. But truly changing their hearts, whose business is that? Who can change a heart? Can you? You can't do it. Do you really believe that? How would your life change? What might... Might look different in the way that you live by faith if you think the only person who can change this, per, this individual's heart, who I try desperately to love, is God. How might that look different? It's, I, 
I'm not going to give you all the answers. I want you to come up with them and live them out, but I'll give you, I'll give you one example of this too. You know, Paul, Paul Miller, who, who wrote a book, great book, A Praying Life, has five kids. One of them is autistic. And so his, his biggest struggle hasn't been a child who went wayward or something, but just a child who has a physical disability. And that the book, he writes quite a bit about how he's, you know, struggled with that too. And he says this, Mature Christians are keenly aware that they can't raise their kids. It's a no-brainer. So listen, if you're like, I'm a mature Christian, I have to pretend like I got it all together, he would argue otherwise. You realize you don't in many respects. Even if they have perfect parents, maybe even Adam and Eve, the mother of all living things, her firstborn child murders the younger son. Can you imagine the grief can you imagine? I can't even imagine it. She's already had great disappointment. She and her husband were banished from God's perfect creation. You think they feel like giant losers as parents? Messing it up for everybody else and now their son murders the younger child? Even if they have perfect parents, they still can't get inside their kids' hearts. That's why strong Christians pray more. It didn't take me long to realize I did my best parenting by prayer. So how good of a parent are you if you're measuring that too? We don't want, see, the problem is we feel like we can control way more than we actually can. In prayer, you come to a point where you're acknowledging I am not God and he's got better plans than I do and I can no longer craft and shape this little one in my image. It's got to be him. At least that's what Paul Miller's arguing. So he says, I began to speak less to the kids and more to God. So there's, a, there's at least a one practical application point to consider in your life as well. Living by faith, offering an acceptable sacrifice isn't just setting necessarily all. And, and how, does, how does that work out? Living by faith means we can aim to create an environment where our kids see the dynamics of the gospel modeled. For example, confession of sin. Have you confessed your sins to your kids? Have you gone to them and said, I know, I've been harsh. Please forgive me. I want what's best and oftentimes I don't do it. I'm sorry. Will you pray for me? See, when you do that, what are you saying? Christ is the sufficient sacrifice. I no longer have to pretend I'm something I'm not. Same thing is true for offering forgiveness of others extending it, points them to Christ as the true sacrifice. Responding to failure with grace points them to Christ as the true sacrifice. And of course, setting boundaries and love points them to a life concerned with righteousness, of course. We're targeting the heart, but we can't change it. And I, I would just suggest as parents, since I'm speaking to them too, that you're, you're, you're leaving a legacy by the, thing, the way that you respond to the failures in life and your own and your kids as well. By faith. Fill in the blank. You know, here's the good news. We said last week, by faith we, by faith we is there two times. Your name's there. Can be. So, but remember that Christ, is the, that, if you latch on to that reality, Christ is the sufficient sacrifice. There is real freedom. Real freedom that comes. God, your plan's bigger and better. I can't control all this. I felt that this morning, to be honest with you. Even with, with a church, too. I'm like, Things are some beyond my control sometimes. 
And I was sitting up here thinking, God, forgive me. I'm, in my heart, I know I'm starting, I'm, I want to control things. They're not going according to plan. Yours is bigger and more beautiful. I don't see it right now, but I'm going to trust it. Yeah, I mean, this is practical stuff. This isn't faith living out there and say, it's real. Happens as you live and breathe. And I hope you see that. Father, I pray that you'd give us hearts to see, the eyes, spiritual eyes, to see what it looks like to live by faith and to trust that you are our sufficient sacrifice. And then we offer our lives humbly to you and uh, in service. And that looks different for everybody. We're in different phases of life. But the call is the same, and the call to look to the same Savior exists as well. Jesus is the object of our faith. He's the author and the perfecter. So we pray that as we go through this journey, the vision of Christ would grow larger. And that as a result, as we enter into that and understand it and bring the gospel into our lives, we respond with lives that care about the things you care about, that are quick to confess and quick to act in ways that are honoring to you as a reflective response to the grace given us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.